Hello and welcome to Charm City Checkup, a podcast about social justice issues in the city of Baltimore for pediatric residents, made by a pediatric resident. My name is Caroline Knoop and I'm your host. Currently, I am a second year pediatric resident in the city of Baltimore. I'm learning about community resources, social justice issues, and social determinants of health that face our patients and their families. Join me as I learn about all things social justice in the city of Baltimore. On today's episode, we'll be talking about insurance. Insurance is one of those words that causes a shudder down the spine of residents when it is brought up. What even is insurance? What kind of insurance does my patient have? How does their insurance affect how I'm going to be able to treat them? Does my preceptor need to see this patient at Midtown after me? The list of questions about insurance can go on and on and on and on. Today, I hope to lay out some basics of types of insurance that our pediatric patients may have. Let's start with Medicaid. Medicaid is a program financed by the federal and state government. Most patients that use Medicaid come from moderate to low-income families who do not have access to affordable employer coverage. In particular, children who require long-term or intensive care will usually end up using both their private insurance and Medicaid. A program within Medicaid is called Early Periodic Screening, Diagnostic, and Treatment which covers preventative diagnostic and treatment services, as well as long-term services for physical, developmental, and mental conditions that affect growth and development for children under 21 years of age. The next program to talk about is CHIP. It's the Children Health Insurance Program. It was established as Title 21 of the Social Security Act in 1997. Its function was to further expand health insurance to uninsured children through Medicaid. Essentially, the program aims to expand Medicaid at the state level through grants, but in order to receive access to these grants, states must contribute to the larger fund. CHIP begins where Medicaid ends, which is 138% of the federal poverty line. Patients can be covered by CHIP through Medicaid and receive full Medicaid benefits and cost-sharing protections, or there is a separate CHIP plan in which families have to pay premiums but still get the cost-sharing protections. Given all of this, it is still more generous than marketplace or employer-sponsored plans. CHIP has been through some ups and downs. It was first established after the Clinton Comprehensive Health Care Reform failure. Shortly thereafter, President Bush vetoed expansion of the grant. In 2009, President Obama passed the Children's Health Insurance Reauthorization Act, which expanded health care coverage to an additional 4 million children and pregnant women who were otherwise uninsured. In 2018, the act was authorized to continue until 2027. Private insurance is common among higher income families and is provided through employers. Parents are able to add their children to their insurance plan from their employer. Issues with private insurance are multiple, but one to be particularly aware of is that lapses of insurance for patients is higher during a recession when many people may lose their jobs, causing interruption of insurance coverage for the entire family. Private insurance is also available through the subsidized marketplace via the Affordable Care Act. The marketplace is only available to children from families who are ineligible for public insurance like Medicaid or CHIP and who do not have access to employer insurance. With all of that information in mind, it is clear that there are many nuances about children's health insurance coverage. Insurance gaps still remain in the United States. In 2018, about 5.5% of children in the U.S. were uninsured. Those at higher risk of being uninsured include Latino children, adolescents, and non-citizens. 
Due to the possibility of insurance lapses and different enrollment status based on family income, there is a lack of permanent stable coverage guaranteed for all children in the United States, making this a clear social justice issue. For today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Ada Offerum and Suzanne Meyer from the University of Maryland Medical Center. They work together on care management and resource utilization management. I had a great discussion with them about how to best navigate the world of insurance claims and denials and resource utilization. Thank you to both Dr. Ada Offerum and Suzanne Meyer for joining me on today's episode to talk about insurance and resource utilization management. Um, thank you both for joining me today. Let's just jump right into it. Can you both tell us about your role um, and how it relates to resource utilization and insurance at the University of Maryland Hospital? Sure, thank you. Um, well, first, thanks Caroline for the opportunity to be here today um, and have a talk about um, insurance and utilization management. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, so my name is Suzanne Meyer. Um, I am an RN um, by background. I have um, a master's in healthcare administration. I'm an accredited case manager and I hold certification in case management administration. And I am the manager of the utilization management department at both downtown campus or University of Maryland Medical Center and the Midtown campus. Um, we have a department of about 40 nurses who review the medical records of patients in the hospital. Um, and we can go into more detail about that a little bit later. Um, so Dr. Ofram, I'll hand it over to you. All right, thank you. Um, Ada Ofram, glad to be here. Thank you for this opportunity, um, Caroline, to really have us talk about something that, you know, we all think about and not, not always sure how to blend it with trying to give the best care to our patients. So I, um, I started out as a hospitalist, which I still do that on the, um, on the adult side. And I'm a physician advisor as well. I lead our physician advisor groups. And these are physicians who do a little bit of everything, but most would say our core work is as a liaison between care management, which includes utilization management for which Suzanne Meyer is the manager, as well as case management and social work. So we're a liaison between that group and our providers, including physicians and APPs and hospital leadership, whether it's um, with denials management, figuring out how to get paid by insurance companies, discharge planning for our patients, as well as anything that we need to bring up to the surface to make sure our providers as well as hospital leadership are aware of and are joining us and are aligned in the tools to improve things. And I also work in the Dean's office as the Assistant Dean for Faculty Affairs and Professional Development as well. Great. Thank you so much for both of you um, joining me today. Um, and you guys brought up a lot of great multidisciplinary approaches about how we deal with patients and insurance um, issues in the hospital, which is really important. Um, one of the things you also brought up was denials of insurance claims. How do these happen um, for our patients and how can we as particularly residents help avoid them? Um, well, denials can occur for many different reasons. Um, and there are a few different denial types, um, including administrative or technical denials, 
out of network denials and medical necessity denials. Uh, factors that can lead to denials include expired in insurance information that might be in the system from a previous encounter that we had with the patient. Uh, contact information for the insurance might be missing that causes a delay in communication and a denial for the information being received late by the insurance. Uh, the insurance may not have been notified of the patient's admission either at all or within their notification timeline window, which is usually about 24 hours um, after admission. So a technical denial might be issued for that. Um, insurance may um, disagree with the assigned status, um, whether the patient is inpatient or observation, they might think it should be one or the other. Um, or the insurance may decide that medical necessity is not met either at the time of admission or at some point during the patient's stay. And for those reasons, they may issue a not medically necessary denial. Um, we could get denials when the patient is medically ready for discharge, but there might be a barrier to discharge. Um, if the patient had a procedure that ended up being different to the procedure that was authorised, they may the insurance may issue a denial. Um, and sometimes if the patient has more than one insurance, um, both insurances might sometimes issue a denial until they work out the um, coverage of benefits, who's the primary and who's the secondary. Those ones are typically overturned once that situation is, is sorted out. So those are some of the types of denials that we get and some of the reasons for them. Um, with the medical necessity denials, we work very closely and are very dependent upon our physician advisors, Dr. Ofram's group, um, to help us overturn those. So Dr. Ofram, I'll hand it over to you and you can go into that process a little more. Yeah, um, thanks so much, Suzanne. I think um, one of the big turning points for me as a clinician was just knowing that the fact that a patient is going to stay in the hospital doesn't automatically mean that they are admitted. And even though we are in 2023, and quite a few clinicians, um, even residents, are aware of the what it means to be in observation status versus what is what it means to be an inpatient status, we still have quite a few individuals who, first of all, it's busy and they have a patient who they called into the they were called into the emergency room to put in an order for, and the default is often to admit that patient. Mm -hmm. Insurance companies are very sensitive to that. Sometimes they have reviewers who are reviewing these cases in the hospital. Sometimes it happens externally on the outside, but they're watching. And so as Suzanne rightfully said, that, that appropriate status at the right time is something that insurance companies may issue a denial for. Another area where I get involved in is in helping our utilization management team to really decipher some of the documentation. And so something that you know residents may not realize is the fact that you know your patient is sick doesn't necessarily mean that that will come across in documentation. And that's another area that makes us vulnerable for denials. So um, unfortunately, things like copy pasting, not really explicitly saying that a patient is looking worse 
Mm. can and we'll talk more about documentation may also make us vulnerable different insurance companies have different bars for which they judge what we call intensity of service as well as severity of illness and they look at the documentation for that severity of illness is how sick you are so if we are only commenting on one particular illness or or a chief complaint but we're not necessarily mentioning other things that make the patient sicker or not quite ready to leave the hospital, we may get a denial for that. Intensity of service is what are we doing here? So even if a patient is here for a long time, if we are not doing a lot of active things that would warrant them to still be in a hospital or would warrant them to be in the inpatient status instead of observation, that can also put us at risk, at risk for denials. As Suzanne said, something that we do on the physician advisor side as well is to do peer-to-peers. So when an insurance company issues a denial, we still have a small opportunity to have a discussion with the medical director of that insurance company to see if we can get that denial overturned. So that's a word we use for when that denial is reversed. Um, Sometimes we're able to explain to the insurance company that even if something was not explicitly said in the chart, if we did not say that a, that a patient, and I'm trying to put on my PEDS hat, uh, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not trained in PEDS, but any experience I have is from peer to peers and having to read the chart, as well as working closely with Dr. Nitty Goyle, mm-hmm. who um, also used to do physician advisor time. So sometimes if it's not clearly said that a baby is not gaining weight, if it's not clearly said that that bowel movement was absolutely necessary before a patient could go home, if it's not said in the chart, then we need to pull that information and express that to the insurance company. Sometimes the insurance company is quick to pull that trigger saying, why couldn't the patients have gone to um, Mount Washington Mm-hmm. And we have to explain during the peer-to-peer the reasons why the patient was not quite ready. So it helps when documentation supports that. But these are just some of the scenarios that can lead to a denial, which can be confusing to clinicians who are doing their best to take care of the patients and documenting what they can. Definitely. And I think as residents, we are taught um, that, you know, document everything. And if you don't document it, it didn't happen. Um, But it's always good to get a reminder that this has implications down the road for patients as well. Um, It can can cause some significant financial burden um, if these denials happen. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask too is you mentioned admission versus observation. And I know as a second year resident, I am always getting messages can you please change the status of a patient, even maybe after they've been admitted um, or if something in their status changes? Um, How can we fully kind of understand which patients of ours need to be admission versus an observation status? And why does this really matter? Uh, Maybe I'll get started since I can give (laughs) the physician portion of this. Um, The truth is, there are some nuances to this that your that residents may not and should not know all the details of. So hopefully what we'll do today is just give you some broad nuggets. We have a 24-7 utilization management team. 
And, you know, the reason why they're here is because it's not always clear. So we give the nuggets some framework, but sometimes things change. Mm -hmm. The patient you saw in the emergency room may look very different 24 hours later. The patient who you admitted all of a sudden is still in the hospital on day seven because the parents may not have shown up for teaching or because Mount Washington doesn't have a bed. So there are some nuances for which our utilization management is actively reviewing, but, um, but what we'll provide is a framework. And what I always say is, once again, insurance companies are looking at how sick is the patient and what are you doing for the patient. While we have some insurers like Medicare, which, um, who also looks at kind of timelines, did the patient stay for two midnights? Will they be expected to stay for two midnights? So the general framework is, if you're not sure what's going on with the patient, as in you don't have a firm diagnosis, the patient situation has not revealed itself, um, and so far you are watching, you are monitoring, you're waiting to see, especially if it's been within 24 hours of your first encounter with that patient, generally most insurance companies would want that patient to be in observation status. Now, once you have a better sense of what's going on, you're requiring to do a lot, either in terms of medications, IV fluids, the patient's clinical status may have changed. We have a firm diagnosis. We're requiring a lot of consults, a lot of testing, a lot of treatment. It's been 24 hours or it's been two midnights. The general framework is that those are the patients who would meet inpatient status. So that is very broad, but I will, I will give Suzanne the opportunity to, to go a little bit deeper. Great, thank you. We have, like I mentioned earlier, we have a department of um, over 40 nurses in utilization management, and they're reviewing the medical record of the patients that are in the hospital. Um, and they're using a criteria called MCG, um, some providers might be also familiar with the term interqual, which is a different kind of criteria. They're the two main nationally recognised criteria tools that are used by the majority of hospitals across the country. Um, as I said, our one of choice is MCG. So we use that criteria uh, when we're reviewing the medical record on admission and throughout admission to make sure that the patient is meeting the criteria. The purpose of criteria is to create a level playing field and a common language between the hospitals and the insurances. So when the, when the specific criteria are met, it proves to us the status that the patient should be at, and it also proves it to the insurance. So they should not be issuing a denial when, um, when we agree on the status, uh, when we agree on the criteria. Um, so we have status, which can be outpatient, which can be observation, which is also a version of outpatient um, or inpatient. Um, and we also use MCG to help determine level of care. Level of care being, is the patient in the ICU, in the IMCU or med surge? So that is what we use. And we work closely with the providers um, if we need more information to be able to select criteria in MCG. And it also 
is very important for the providers to enter good and detailed notes because their notes can contain those criteria points that we're looking for. So the distinction really between um, admission or inpatient and observation is that admission is, can basically be equated to the same thing as inpatient. If a payer sees admission um, in the HMP, they're automatically going to think they're intending inpatient. Um, whereas observation, as I mentioned, is an outpatient designation. The difference between regular or straight outpatient is that observation outpatient is billed by the hour. Hmm. Observation is typically reserved for short stays, stays that are anticipated to be 24 hours or less. Um, it allows time to work up the patient to see what's going on here, as if there's differential diagnoses going on at the time and, and it hasn't been um, finalised what the patient is suffering from or experiencing. Um, and it's... Um, and inpatient stays are typically for a longer length of time. Um, there are certain diagnoses in the paediatric population that are more likely to be observation. And some of these include amongst the respiratory conditions, asthma, bronchiolitis, croup, um, also some abdominal conditions such as gastroenteritis, dehydration, abdominal pain. Um, some head injuries are appropriate for um, being observed under observation, uh, also potential appendicitis and um, toxic ingestions as well. Um, a paediatric patient who had a procedure and might be experiencing a delay in their recovery time from sedation or anesthesia um, or whose postoperative pain is not being well controlled, they may be appropriate for observation. Typically, any patient who's being worked up for a suspected medical issue would be appropriate for observation. And um, status can is flexible. A patient can be changed from observation to inpatient. Typically, we refer to that as the patient failed observation, which is usually that initial first 24 hours. So if after 20 or at or after 24 hours, the patient um, is not yet ready to be discharged, then the providers can um, typically change that patient to inpatient. It varies a little bit on the payer because some insurances will pay only 24 hours and some will pay um, up to 48 hours, some even 72. But those are the ones that pay um, 48 to 72 hours are typically the Medicare Advantage plans and you don't see as many of those plans amongst um, the paediatric population. Um, with regard to inpatient, some patients might have procedures that are only done um, as an inpatient, even if they're only in the hospital for one night. So the length of stay rule doesn't always apply for patients that are having a procedure. It might be something that they need intensive monitoring in the ICU for one night after the procedure, airway management, that kind of thing. They may be appropriate for inpatient. Um, but the... Um, Determination of status for patients coming in for a procedure is often set by the insurance according to the uh, authorization that they will provide. Um, typically, the surgeon's offices who are requesting the authorizations are providing the insurance with the information of the procedure and what needs to be done. And then the insurance provides an authorization and determine whether it should be done as an outpatient or as an inpatient. 
Um, a pediatric patients, um, they're often covered by an MCO or a managed care organization, which are Medicaid insurances. And some of the most frequent ones that we see are uh, Straight Maryland Medicaid, uh, United Healthcare MCO, Priority Partners, WellPoint, which used to be Amerigroup, Maryland Physicians Care, MedStar, Blue Cross, and Aetna Better Health. Uh, children might also be covered under their parents' commercial insurance plans, such as a Blue Cross Blue Shield, Care First Administrators, United Healthcare, Aetna, Cigna, maybe Kaiser. Many insurances have both Medicaid plans and commercial insurance plans. That's really great information. Thank you so much. And the pediatric specific diagnoses and kind of settings that we see ourselves in, especially on the inpatient floor is super helpful. Um, definitely cleared up a lot of my questions. So thank you for that. Um, what are some things that you wish that physicians, particularly residents knew about, you know, all those different types of insurances that you just listed off and, you know, how our patients use their insurance plans and how can we help them like on a daily basis when they're even in an outpatient or an inpatient setting um, that would help our patients if we just knew some basics? I think it, it's important and I'm sure that a lot of the um, residents and other providers are already aware that um, government departments such as the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and insurance companies set many of the parameters that we in utilization management have to work within. Um, for example, the 24 hours of observation is actually set by the Maryland Department of Health. And so the Medicaid organizations, the MCOs that are under the umbrella of the um, Maryland Department of Health, they will only pay that 24 hours. It's not their choice, that's what they've been directed to do. Um, in Maryland, we need to communicate daily with many of the insurances that we work with um, to provide them evidence to back up the need for the hospitalisation for that day. Maryland is um, what's called a waiver state, which means we have an exception from other states across the country that work on DRGs or diagnosis-related groups. So what it means for Maryland is that instead of having a patient admit and then you don't have to send clinical information for say three or four days to the insurance because it's covered under a DRG, we actually have to submit clinical information daily to most insurances. So that is a, mm. a big difference between Maryland and other states. So we are extremely reliant on good high quality notes from the providers in their daily progress notes to send the evidence to the insurance of why this patient needs to stay in the hospital and why they should pay us for the services that we're providing for that day. So um, that is what is vital for us. Um, Got it. And it can be difficult for patients that are long stay patients because it can be a little tempting if nothing much is changing <laughs> with the case to kind of copy and paste a note or something like that. But it's really important um, that anything that changes with that patient during the day is documented so that we can find that and share that with the insurance. Got it. Yeah. So updating that assessment every single day on a daily basis is something that we should all do, but it's a good reminder as well. Yeah, and I, I was going to add that probably one important thing for residents is just to keep working collaboratively as a team with your case managers, your social workers, and your utilization managers. 
because some of it can be can be overwhelming and some of it you know is you know I, I call it head scratchers as in when when you're told by case management or utilization that because of a patient's particular type of insurance um, if they had spent time in some kind of you know, post-acute rehab facility that now those days have been used up and it's going to affect whether the patient can go to a place like Mount Washington, it, it can be stifling to hear that. And, and, you know, one would say, here we are taking good care of the patient. Why does their insurance end up dictating their care? And so having that awareness that sometimes it does, we have insurance companies which we don't take in some of our outpatient um, facilities. And so it's important that when a patient is getting discharged, and this is more so the case with patients with medical assistance and Medicaid, that, it, that we know what insurance they have and whether they can see PEDS GI, PEDS nephrology um, here at university, or whether they have to go to a different physician based on what's within the network for their insurance. And so it's it's part of a conversation. Really, I think that's probably the big, the big advice slash takeaway, which is that this is complex. Insurance companies do play a bigger role than we think. And as long as you keep documenting and you keep answering those tiger texts and having conversations and asking questions, that's the way to peel away and understand it a little bit more, but it is, it is quite complex. Yeah, definitely. And we, even on the floor, we have something called interdisciplinary rounds um, that senior residents go to and talk about each patient each day on the floor. And so just remembering to bring up insurance or kind of barriers to discharge or follow-up appointments is a great reminder as well. Um, that kind of brings me to another question. I know we talked about insurance, but can you talk a little bit more about resource utilization and kind of how that plays a role in the hospital's resources and kind of what is at our disposal disposal as far as um, knowing what kind of resources we can use and how residents can help with um, utilization management? Sure. So we're looking for... Um, any unnecessary or duplication of services. For example, has the patient got two MRIs ordered for today? There might be a question go out for the, to the provider to say, are two really needed or do you want one today or one tomorrow? That kind of thing that might be just like an error um, in order entry. Um, we try to, especially with the patients that are under observation because we have that narrow 24 hour window we have, as Dr. Ofra mentioned earlier, a 24-7 team um, that is day shift, evening shift, night shift, weekends that are reviewing these patients in observation to make sure they're observation appropriate, to um, check whether they're appropriate for conversion to inpatient after 24 hours, um, and also to um, make sure that they're getting their testing workup consults done within that 24-hour period. With the MCOs, because they will only pay 24 hours, any hours that are accrued beyond 24, we don't get paid for and end up being written off. So, for example, recently um, we've been seeing um, a few um, delays in therapy consults. The therapy order has gone in and it might be two days later and, and we're still waiting for therapy to come see the patient. So we've been working with the therapy department 
um, to come and see those uh, patients within a 24-hour period so that we're not waiting with the patient sitting there in the hospital accruing hours um, and it's getting done in a, in a timely way. So those are some ways that we're working on utilization management while the patients are in the hospital. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, we, I think of resource utilization the same way you said it, Suzanne, which is, are we using a service in the hospital that is necessary, important, and urgent for the care of the patient? Are there other alternatives such as, does this patient really need this test at all? Does this patient really need this particular intervention to be done while they're in the hospital? Or is it something that with appropriate case management, home care, and the right set of eyes on this patient, can they get it done at home? We often think of a framework of lower cost and I think that's where sometimes we, we have, you know, I will call it comprehensive conversations around resource utilization, but we need to think of it beyond reducing cost. It's also ensuring, especially in the, you know, COVID era and with shortage of staffing and shortage of beds, it's also ensuring that you have the right capacity to be able to take care of the patients who need care because when patients are ready for that lower level or they can receive their care at home, you are moving them that way. So I, I think of that framework for resource utilization, not just to prevent denials, but to make sure that we have the right patients in the right bed with the right amount of care for them. Um, another aspect of resource utilization is you know, making sure that we have a good transitional care plan and I mean, I know on the adult side, transitional care services have been very pivotal in getting patients an appointment, making sure that they can make it to an appointment and ensuring that patients understand what their post-discharge care will be. Hopefully the same exists on the pediatric side so that that helps to get patients out sooner. So I still come back to the teamwork, right? It's that collaborative teamwork between the providers, physicians taking care of a patient, the those helping to make appointments, case management and utilization, letting you know what the discharge plan can be and what a patient's insurance will allow for. I think all this is how we make sure that we are getting patients discharged when they need to be discharged so that we have the patients who need the bed most in the hospital. That's great. These were awesome pearls. Um, thank you so much. I think that it's always a great reminder for multidisciplinary care and working as a team, as well as thinking about the patient, not just for their illness, but also their holistic picture and discharge planning and making sure that we are utilizing the resources that we have at the hospital in the right ways. So I thank you both so much for joining me. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us um, and get this information to pediatric residents. Thanks for listening to this episode of Charm City Checkup, a podcast about social justice issues in the city of Baltimore for pediatric residents, made by a pediatric resident. Special thanks to medical students Juliana Solomon and Jessica Carullo for their contributions. 
Please follow us on Instagram at Charm City Checkup and feel free to reach out with any questions or episode ideas by emailing charmcitycheckup at gmail.com. Please remember that all opinions expressed on the podcast are mine and not necessarily shared by my employer.